Talking Cases EM Quick Hits podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics you may not be totally comfortable with. Quick, let's get on with it. We've interrupted regular programming for a special edition EM Cases Quick Hits dedicated to COVID-19. I asked a few of my foam friends and EM leaders to share with us their experience with the COVID pandemic and give us a couple of tips while they're at it. As expected, these incredibly dedicated people came through with very little notice, so thank you to all of them. My hope is that by hearing about their experience with the crisis, you'll be better equipped both emotionally and cognitively with these troubling times. So first up, we've got Dr. Eddie Lang, who was on the PE podcasts and the High Sensitivity Troponin podcasts. He's a chief of an academic ED in Calgary in Western Canada. My name is Eddie Lang, and I'm the Zone Clinical and Academic Department Head for Emergency Medicine in Calgary. Anton has asked me to provide a five-minute quick hit on the key things that are happening here in Calgary in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. What I will do is cover five key topics that I see as particularly relevant from a leadership perspective. Number one, while you wear multiple hats as a leader, during this pandemic, your most important hat is to protect and support emergency staff, both in terms of their physical protection from inadvertent infection to their psychological well-being in times of high anxiety and distress. For these reasons, our primary focus at this time, March 21st, is to address PPE preservation strategies. This covers the gamut of novel reusable N95 masks to collaborating with our colleagues in Infection Prevention and Control, IPNC, to develop nimble and safe approaches that will mitigate risk for our physicians and nurses. This also includes careful attention to protecting ward stock and monitoring for inappropriate use. In terms of psychological well-being, we have a physician wellness hub, which was launched a myriad of efforts to support our group, both those who are unable to work due to isolation and illness, as well as those who are working but are experiencing the duress of school closures and other challenges imposed by the state of emergency currently declared in Calgary. Number two, the covert pandemic has brought out the best and worst of individuals in our society but in the ED, it's been largely the best. We've seen an extraordinary amount of collaboration, coordination, and stepping up to make sure that we are as prepared as possible for what is transpiring. As an example, we've had a physician volunteer undertake extensive research in what other jurisdictions are doing with regards to PPE preservation. Another physician gladly agreed to undertake a volunteer consulting role with a local clinic that serves vulnerable populations to help them develop their COVID plan. The generosity and commitment of our doctors and nurses has been exemplary, let alone the restaurants that keep sending free food to the ED. The bottom line is that emergency docs are inherently generous and patient, and if a task is needed in COVID preparation, you need only ask and someone will come forth in these challenging times. Number three, communication is key. As leaders, and we are all leaders on the emergency department floor, everyone is watching us to gauge our reaction to the COVID-19 pandemic. It is critically important to monitor your tone, your attitude, and what you say about what's going on while remaining genuine. If there was ever a time to be a half glass full kind of person, this would be that time. 
It is especially important to let your team know about all the good work that's going on into protecting the emergency department and controlling the pandemic. If you are in jurisdictions like mine, you will be seeing the establishment of off-site assessment centers that provide COVID swabbing, as well as greatly ramped up HealthLink and 811 telephone lines to offset what would certainly be a flood of suspected COVID-infected patients in the ED if those services did not exist. It's also critically important to streamline the veritable flood and email-based information that can come at your team during these trying times. These threads can be overwhelming and lead to an out-of-control anxiety invoking online discussion that lacks the personal context. Number four, leveraging technology to build a sense of community. With departmental rounds and meetings canceled or severely curtailed as a result of COVID, it is very important to explore other avenues to share information and allow the members of your department, including nurses, to maintain a sense of community and get a sense of where the leadership team is at. In Calgary, two of our physicians organized a Zoom platform to replace our academic half-day grand rounds and put on a 90-minute session dedicated to key issues in regards to the COVID pandemic. With support from local expertise in IPNC and with a host of panelists and presenters covering key topics, ranging from doffing and donning and intubations, we gathered over 300 attendees in a virtual space, and now the recording has been converted to YouTube video with over a 1,000 views within less than 48 hours of publication. The feedback has been remarkable, mostly from physicians and nurses feeling that we got this and that we've got each other's backs. Number five, acknowledging the tremendous support that allows us to wear a leadership hat. Calgary's pandemic response as it exists in our five emergency departments would not be possible with countless hours of intense dedication by our leadership team. All four of our adult site chiefs and assistant site chiefs who are pouring countless hours into communication and preparatory work that has gone into simulation, ED functional reorganization, and collaborative efforts to ensure that we are as ready as we can be. Calgary hospitals have become covert hospitals by virtue of turning nearly all of their attention to preparing for the pandemic. This has been a massive undertaking, a heroic one that has involved cancellation of numerous clinics and elective surgeries. We are currently seeing the lowest levels of boarding in the emergency department and the lowest levels of hospital occupancy that we have known. It is critical to acknowledge all of this tremendous sacrifice that has been involved and never miss an opportunity to do so. Lastly, big thank you to Anton for the opportunity and happy to answer any of your questions via email. Wishing all of you health and safety over the next few weeks. Hey there, this is Salim Rezai from Rebel EM. I wanted to give everyone some practical tips on the management and things to think about on COVID-19. So the first thing is people are often looking for fever, cough, and dyspnea in patients that they suspect of COVID-19. But there's also this group of patients, not the majority by far and away, that come in with GI symptoms as well. And these can be things like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, anorexia, also vague as well. But there is a small percentage of people that will come in with just these symptoms. And the reason I mention this is 
if we solely monitor for respiratory symptoms to establish patients under investigation, we're going to miss some cases which can have some serious downstream repercussions. The second pearl in terms of management is that, first of all, widely available respiratory viral panels, they only test for the earlier forms of human coronavirus. But for illnesses such as SARS and MERS and now COVID-19 strains, these require more specialized assays. So if you have a coronavirus test that pops positive on your respiratory viral panel, it's not one of these latter three. Now, to muddy the waters a bit more, there was a study out of Stanford, which is not officially published, but has also shown that 49 patients with SARS-CoV-2, 11 of them, 22.4%, also had co-infection with other viral illnesses. So what I'm trying to get at here is that if you have a patient that is positive for flu, for example, or any other respiratory viral illness, You have not ruled out COVID-19, so this is important to remember. The third thing I want you to remember is there's been lots of conversation about what imaging modality to use for screening in potential COVID-19 patients. And we know that lung abnormalities can typically develop before any clinical manifestations and even before our PCR tests end up popping positive. There have been cases of people that have imaging abnormalities and a negative test. Now, we know that chest x-ray is not sensitive, and we also know that lung ultrasound, at least from early reports, is equivalent to chest CT, but has the added advantage of not transporting patients through the department or shutting down a scanner for decontamination. So as we decide which modalities we want to use, remember that imaging does not make the diagnosis of a disease, but it does help define the extent of a disease and may even suggest alternative diagnoses. And for me, this is going to be lung ultrasound. And the things I'm looking for are a thickened pleura, B-lines, subpleural consolidations with air bronchograms. These don't, again, make the diagnosis of COVID-19, but they certainly point me toward that diagnosis of a viral pneumonia. The fourth thing I want to mention is there have been some reports out of France indicating that ibuprofen worsens the effects of COVID-19. And there was a report in The Lancet that stated ibuprofen upregulates the expression of ACE2. And the reason this is important is this is the binding site for the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So what I have to say here is although there is a biologically plausible explanation that ACE2 expression is increased with the use of ibuprofen, there is absolutely no robust evidence at this time that shows worsen outcomes in COVID-19 infection. So my recommendation is until that time, Why not use acetaminophen as the first-line antipyretic in patients infected with COVID-19? But if that's not working, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Ibuprofen may or may not cause worsen outcomes, but this is an observation at this time. We would need a much, much larger trial to give causation. The fifth and final thing I want to talk about actually doesn't have to do with clinical management, and I think it's something that we are all having to deal with. And this is the fact that Being in the medical profession, we've all accepted increased risk as part of our chosen profession. And we all still worry about family transmission. I mean, nobody wants to give this to anybody in their family. And we know that caring for infected patients represents a substantial exposure for all healthcare providers. So it's important to have conversations with your hospital system and your family. And, you know, this can include things like 
making sure your hospital has priority testing available for you and your family to ensure that you can figure out exactly what you need to do. Think about what routines need to change at home. This is going to be different for everyone. I certainly have my routines, but that may not be what you need to do at your house. And then finally, don't forget to wipe down all your kind of extra things, including your phone, your badge, your watch, any jewelry you're wearing. The ideal situation would be don't take any of it with you to work, but obviously this is not completely feasible. These things are often forgotten and they are a potential nidus of infection that you could bring back to your home. I hope you guys find these five tips helpful. Keep fighting the good fight. And as I've been telling everybody back home, one day at a time, one patient at a time, we're all in this together. All we are hearing about in the news, all we are hearing about in the medical literature is about COVID-19, about SARS-CoV-2. This is all we are talking about. This is everything. It's hard for me to even find an article that I want to read published on another topic or a blog post on another topic to distract us from what's going on. And we as providers do need to be on top of this. There's no way in five minutes or even in an hour, I can give you enough information to take care of these patients. But what Anton asked me to do is just to share a little bit from the front lines. I am working currently at St. Joe's in Patterson, New Jersey, and we are seeing a lot of COVID-19 patients. We are not seeing quite the slam that New York is seeing right now, although by the time this gets published, we may be there. We are a little bit in the calm before the real surge occurs. At least that's where I think we are. And again, we'll see what happens. And I just want to share a couple of things that I have noticed over the last couple of weeks that maybe will help you to gear up to be ready for what is coming. The first is about personal protective equipment, and, and I'm sure that all of you have seen this. It's splashed all over social media. It's all over the news. We don't have enough PPE to go around. We don't have enough to protect ourselves, but we do have to protect ourselves first. This is the first priority. I put this on social media, and I got a bunch of firefighters and EMTs that responded. The firefighters all said the same thing. I would never go into a burning building without my equipment. How can you possibly go into a room with a patient with this without protecting yourself first? If we get sick, there's going to be no one to care for the millions of patients that need us. If we get sick, we're not going to be able to see our families. We might get our families sick. We can't risk ourselves. We can't risk our health. Now, lots of hospitals, lots of people out there are investigating different ways to get our PPE or get enough PPE to the providers. We have looked at using construction masks with similar respirator systems to the N95s. I think that's one way that we can get there. These are reusable, which means they have to be wiped down similar to a PAPR unless you're bringing your own to work. And the filters themselves have a lifespan. They don't work forever. So you got to buy extra filters for those. So not the easiest thing to do. One other thing that's out there, although there's not enough data to say whether we should do it, there's ongoing research, is on using UVC light to disinfect the N95 respirators that have been used and trying to see how many times we can do that safely before the N95s lose their ability to protect us. So I think we have to keep our eyes out for that kind of information. That might be a way that we can keep our PPE and keep available PPE for all of us. Number two is don't reinvent the wheel. There are lots of really smart people out there that are making great protocols. Review those protocols and adjust them instead of spending a lot of time making your own protocol. One great example of this is Chris Hicks put out the St. Mike's Airway Checklist. This is a fantastic checklist that might need a little bit of modification for your particular site, but instead of redoing everything, trust your trusted resources. This is why we have these people out there that we know do good work. Take them 
use them and again, modify them to your particular place. Save your diagnostics. This is really important. I'm seeing many healthy patients, young patients with fever and cough that don't have severe symptoms. They're not short of breath. They don't have dyspnea. Their vital signs look good. And when we say they look good, we're actually allowing for a little bit more than what we would typically say are good vital signs. So a heart rate up to 110, 115, even 120 is common and isn't necessarily a marker of bad disease. This is what we're going to see, especially with these patients coming in febrile. So don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. Oxygen saturations in the 94%, again, that's not necessarily a significant factor for severe disease or decompensation. And with those patients, we probably shouldn't be doing chest x-rays. We shouldn't be doing swabs because those are limited resources. Many places are running low on the reagents needed to do those respiratory panels. If the patient isn't really sick, you don't really need any testing. You need to tell them to go home and stay home, put them on quarantine for 14 days or seven days after their symptoms have completely resolved. That's the right thing to do. And if you need to tell them, you have COVID, you have COVID-19, that's what's going on. That's what you have. This is a pandemic. We need to ration some of those resources so that we can bring them to bear on the patients who are really sick. The last thing is that there is so much that is unknown. There's so much that we don't know about this disease. It changes every day. The things that we know, the treatments that we might be able to bring to bear on the patients, they are changing and we need to remain flexible. This is what we do in emergency medicine. We are flexible. We need to hone that skill. We need to be ready to shift and change as more information is coming in. We need to stay up to date. And that's really hard because there is a flood of information coming at us. The last thing I want to say is to stay safe out there, everybody. Remember to protect yourselves, protect your family. Stay home when you don't need to be leaving. When you're in the hospital, be careful. And I hope that everybody stays healthy. And I hope to see you all soon. And now for a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Metricade would like to let you know that they are helping EDs, urgent care clinics, and other provider groups during the COVID-19 pandemic. They've been helping their existing customers set up additional call schedules and screening clinics. They're also working on setting up province-wide virtual walk-in clinics, which will go live on March 30th. And they're doing this for free during the outbreak. Metricade's giving these organizations access to their web-based tool, but more importantly, they're doing all the work building and managing these schedules, helping to build capacity and resilience in our system, doing what they do best. If you're struggling with the logistics of adding coverage to your existing schedule or you're setting up completely new schedules for screening or treatment, let them help you out. They can get a new schedule up and running in a matter of days, leaving you to take care of other matters. Metricade really wants to help you out during this crisis. Let them give you a hand. Check out metricade.com slash emcases and get in touch with them today. Hi, Anton. Thanks for the opportunity to share my experience with the SARS epidemic. As a quick intro for your listeners, my name is Jonathan Sherboneau. I'm a professor of emergency medicine at McMaster University. I'm also a trauma team leader and the assistant dean of education research there. In 2003, I was a senior resident in Toronto providing direct care for SARS patients. It was a long time ago, but the memories and the emotions, they come back pretty quickly and pretty strongly. Perhaps one memory most emblematic of my time was a SARS patient who presented in septic shock. I had to place a hemodialysis line in their groin. And so I can recall nursing and physician colleagues watching through the anteroom window as I entered the room. The patient had been administered activated protein C, which certainly led to a coagulopathy. And 
Ultrasound hadn't been invented yet, and so this was to be a blind procedure. My papper hood was on, my fan was running full speed, and my own minute ventilation must have been north of 40. And as my window seemed to fog up with my own exhaled breath, it was just by luck or by the grace of God that I was able to successfully place a line without causing harm to myself or to my patient. But the anxiety of that moment paled in the, the chronic anxiety both at work and at home as I saw a friend and as I saw colleagues get sick with SARS. Thankfully, they recovered. And so from the experiences that I learned during the SARS epidemic, I hope some of it will be helpful to all of us as we experience this new challenge of the COVID-19 pandemic. So I have three ideas. The first speaks to us as emergency physicians and as leaders in this fight against this pandemic. There's a selective pressure on emergency medicine that causes us to run forward and to offer help. How we lead and how we carry ourselves will have significant influences on our teams. I watched a number of different leadership styles during the SARS epidemic, and I tried and failed with a number of those same styles myself. I'm not suggesting to any of you that we should engage or carry ourselves with false bravado or with a reckless abandon. I really believe that we can be authentic, we can be vulnerable, and yet we can project a calm and thoughtful manner. This optimistic demeanor will have a a really positive and important effect on our teams that are wrestling with the same anxiety that we are experiencing, leading to improved function and to enhance safety. The second idea speaks to the experience of a learner. When SARS hit Toronto, immediately and abruptly, all of our academic activities were cancelled. The camaraderie of study group, being challenged and learning during academic half day, discussing the literature and debating ideas with faculty at Journal Club, immediately they were all put on held. I kind of fell into this educational timeout. I don't suggest that the challenges with delivery of high quality residency education are going to be easy this time around. But we should be thoughtful and intentional about overcoming the educational demoralizing effect of an immediate cutoff from those activities that challenge and encourage in our prime driver in all of our professional development. But with some intentionality and accountability with online and virtual study groups, building chat groups to discuss emerging literature, and being thoughtful and creative with online learning platforms, we can provide a partial, certainly not a complete antidote to my past experience. The third idea speaks to all of us as people facing this pandemic. During the SARS epidemic, I really believed I started to burn out. The new pattern that emerged for me was to trudge towards work, get screened, pray that my temperature was normal and that I wouldn't be pulled out of line for further investigation, put on PPE and wear it incessantly, trudge home, repeat. And when that second wave of SARS hit, I started to really consider whether I wanted to continue in this profession, whether it was worth it to what I was experienced personally and professionally. I'd lost the normal routine of my life, the things that kept me physically and emotionally healthy. And so the advice I would share with you, and I'm trying to encourage my my own self to adopt, is go outside. Exercise. Have virtual drinks or coffee with friends. Phone the people you love and have the conversations that used to be spontaneous but now require a bit more planning. Think about mindfulness to center yourself as you prepare for the rigors of leading from the front lines. 17 years was a long time ago, 
But as those emotions come flooding back, I was proud of how we conducted ourselves, especially then. And as I see emergency medicine leading from the front today, I'm proud of the work that we all do in emergency healthcare. We are, you, us, we're all making a difference. And so stay well. That was Jonathan Sherbino. Next up is Ruben Strayer. Hi, Anton. Let me give you a quick update about what's happening in Brooklyn. Today is Monday, March 23rd. We're able to keep up with our, our volume as of now. Uh, COVID patients comprise about half of the total patients, which is obviously a lot, but our non-COVID patient visits are way down. So we're able to keep up with patient flow which has been a blessing. We're not expecting that to continue. We're very concerned, of course, that the number of COVID patients is going to increase rapidly, including the number of very sick COVID patients. We've divided our ED, as have many others. We generally, in normal times, have a acute zone and a subacute zone. We've taken the acute zone and turned it into really a warm zone for patients who are COVID positive or thought to be COVID positive, presenting with shortness of breath or fever, cough. And within our warm zone, the COVID zone, we have a hot zone, which is our resuscitation bay. In the resuscitation bay, providers are expected to be in maximal PPE. This is where aerosolizing procedures like intubation and CPR take place. In the warm zone, providers are wearing PPE continuously, not the maximal level of PPE, generally an N95 underneath a surgical mask with goggles. And we're reusing um, a lot of that PPE out of concerns that we're going to run out like uh, many uh, hospitals across the country. The cold zone is what was our subacute area, is supposed to be non-COVID patients, but COVID has become so prevalent in New York that Everyone is wearing some degree of PPE, at least a mask, in the cold zone continuously anyway, because ankle sprains, appendicitis, strokes, many of them have COVID too. Working in PPE all day is difficult. Um, It's really hard to not rub your eyes for eight hours or scratch your nose. Goggles fogging has been a continual source of frustration for everyone. Um, there's a learning curve to wearing PPE continuously and for long periods. It's not fun, but it's the right thing to do. COVID testing. So for much of the first phase of the pandemic in New York, we had very little access or no access to testing. And then we got access to widespread testing. So for a few days, we were testing everyone, including outpatients and Uh, huge numbers of those tests came back positive. And then we lost access to widespread testing again, and we're only testing patients who are admitted with a possible COVID. This seems like it'd be a big problem. I personally don't think it's a huge problem because COVID is so prevalent in New York right now that people who have COVID compatible symptoms, so fever, cough, um, progression of illness over a course of days, GI complaints with fever, malaise, everyone's got COVID. So we just assume that it's COVID. The use of labs and imaging is really provider specific. 
I don't see a huge utility. I don't see a huge utility in labs and imaging in determining disposition. It's only real use is in approaching the differential, which at least when you're working in the warm zone, uh, where I was yesterday, where patients who have cough and fever are triaged, we just assume all of these patients have COVID and I'm sure almost all of them do. So I don't need labs or imaging to make a disposition. The only real question is, do they need oxygen to function? If they do, then they have to come in. Um, If they can get by without oxygen, if they can walk around and they feel okay, we're generally sending them home with strict return precautions to come back if they get worse. Some really anxious patients I'm sending home with instructions to purchase a pulse oximeter online, one of those things that you can just put on your finger. And for some of my more anxious patients, I'm advising them to purchase a pulse oximeter online and uh, they can monitor their pulse ox. And I have given them advice to come back if pulse oximeter is persistently below 90. Not just below 90 in a coughing fit, which is common, but persistently below 90. I tell them that if they feel like they're running on a treadmill when they're just sitting down, then they need to come back. So the bar has gotten pretty high to admit already. For admitted patients, we're sending a cohort of labs that have been requested by our infectious disease colleagues, including LDH, ferritin, procalcitonin, CRP, and MRSA swab. Um, we're doing a lot of chest x-rays, of course, in, in, that, in that group, and a lot of CTs. And the CTs are all showing us the, the same thing, which is bilateral ground glass opacities at the bases and up into the middle lung fields. So I don't see a huge value in uh, CT. Everyone who has COVID-compatible symptoms has COVID, and the CT doesn't seem to correlate very well with clinical symptomatology. So I don't see it particularly useful as a diagnostic test or as a risk-stratifying Um, test. We may learn a lot more about this as we go, but I've been using CT less and less as I've seen more and more patients. Hydroxychloroquine uh, is now unavailable in in the community. Um, We have intravenous Plaquenil available uh, under a strict ID protocol that we give to uh, the sickest patients who are being admitted with COVID patients who are on high flow nasal cannula or intubated. Whether or not it works, we have no idea. Um, We'll wait and see on that. There has been a strong push to intubate these patients early, um, that uh, the notion is that alternative forms of support don't work and are more likely to aerosolize the virus so that we should intubate early. And that is a big problem from a scarce resources perspective, because if ventilator therapy is a scarce resource, um, every patient who would fly off the vent that you intubate leads to another patient dying because they couldn't get the vent they needed Early reflection on the Italian response by the Italians themselves uh, suggests that they intubated too many patients too early, and I'm concerned we'll do the same. At the moment, we are pushing high-flow nasal cannula under surgical mask as the initial approach to COVID patients who need support. Um, 30 liters per minute, FiO2 30%, titrate up uh, until the SAT falls below 93-92% on uh, sort of maximal high flow support, and then move forward with intubation. Is that the right approach? I have no idea. Um, But last week when we were in intubate early mode, we intubated seven patients in one shift, and that is clearly not sustainable. So we've moved to a high flow nasal cannula approach in those patients who can tolerate it, which is most, and most of those patients who need oxygen are doing great 
on high flow nasal cannula. For now, we'll see how it goes. That's what's happening in Brooklyn. Um, lots of COVID manageable for now. We're bracing for it to become unmanageable. It's not awesome, but it is awesome to be part of a team where everyone is stepping up to the plate. Stay safe and sane, everyone. Thanks again, Eddie, Salim, Swami, Jonathan, and Ruben. In the next EM Quick Hits COVID podcast, we'll hear from Justin Morgenstern, Michelle Clayman, and a few other of our wise colleagues on their experience with the COVID crisis. We've just added weekly clinical COVID updates on the website, which you can find under the navigation bar labeled COVID-19, and we'll be replicating those in the weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for on the website as well. Here's a summary of the one from March 23rd by Andrew Morris, who was our guest expert on the main episode podcast, COVID-19 Part 1. So the first update is to consider COVID as a potential hospital-acquired illness. So the diagnosis hasn't changed substantially other than recognizing that A, travel history is now totally irrelevant, and B, we anticipate nosocomial spread to arrive soon in Canada. So again, we should consider COVID infection in hospital-acquired illness. Next, you might have heard in the lay press about loss of sense of smell as a specific symptom for COVID. Anosmia is common in upper respiratory tract infections of all kinds. The data is limited and is almost certainly not the real deal. Let's wait and see if this pans out. Third is about drugs. So the evidence for all the various empiric therapies is very poor with poor controls. I'll quote Andrew on this. Quote, if this was anything but COVID, we would think it was Gwyneth Paltrow recommending. We have zero data on remdesivir, which has temporarily become unavailable except for children and pregnant women. Tocilizumab has a retrospective case series of 21 patients who seem to respond miraculously well. And the lopinavir-ritonavir trial was a mixed bag again. No clinical improvement or virological improvement, but mortality did seem lower, but with a very, very wide confidence interval. Lastly, there's lots of talk about increased mortality with high BMIs, but the quality of evidence, again, is sorely lacking at present. Before we go, there is a global online meeting led by the International Federation for Emergency Medicine at 5 p.m. MST on Wednesday, the 25th of March. For more information, go to www.ifem.cc. This meeting will be held using Zoom. Topics covered will range from PPE preservation, ED design strategies, advocacy opportunities, and caregiver well-being and psychological support. This will be an interactive meeting, including a live chat box with mediated Q&A. Until next time, stay safe, be strong, and know that we're all in this together.